invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And there we read, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. And today, we noted is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and it's rather providential that in our study through Philippians, this is the text that is before us. Because as you may have noticed in the reading, it is a passage that instructs us how we are to live when suffering for the sake of Christ. We know that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was imprisoned in Rome for two years. This was his first imprisonment in Rome, and he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And there in that prison, he was uncertain about the outcome of his trial, whether he would be released or whether he would be executed. We know that he was ultimately released and that he continued his ministry of preaching and writing and and mission work. In fact, after he was released from this imprisonment, he, as we noted last week, he wrote the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy before he was imprisoned again and then executed. So Paul here in this passage, we see that despite the uncertainty that he was facing with regard to the outcome of this imprisonment, Paul was confident that God would be glorified either way, whether he was to be released or whether he was to be executed for his faith, for his profession of faith in Christ. This is very similar to uh, Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that they refused to bow down to the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. If I recall in the VeggieTales version, it wasn't a golden statue, it was a giant chocolate bunny. But We know that these three men, they stood firm in their faith. They refused to bow down to worship this created image. And they refused, even though it meant that they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And there was King Nebuchadnezzar who commanded them to bow down, saying this, saying, if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then... Listen to the arrogance in Nebuchadnezzar's words. And then, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? You can see the arrogance that the king had. 
Will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remain steadfast? They remain faithful? They replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. Listen to this. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Their attitude was very similar to the Apostle Paul's. Whether God has ordained that we live or die, praise his name either way. God be glorified. This was Paul's attitude as he was writing to the Philippians. We see it in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul writes, But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, Paul here is saying, if God grants me to be freed from this prison, then great, I continue to live, and that means more ministry in the name of Christ. It means more writing about Christ. It means more preaching the glory of Christ. That's great. He says, but if I am to die, then he says that is far greater because then I will be with Christ. As he says there, which is, again, far better. See, Paul had, even in the midst of his circumstances, he had complete confidence in Christ, in his Lord. And now, Paul wanted the Philippians to have this same confidence, the same assurance. He wanted them to see that they can and must have this same attitude. Why? Because we all serve the same Lord, and we have all been given the same Spirit. Paul is not just speaking as a super-Christian that we can never attain to or we can never be like. You know, sometimes when we are watching uh, professional sports and we see uh, players uh, and and what they are able to do sometimes, it seems like they have superhuman powers. Uh, An amazing pitch, a great catch, right? An amazing goal. And and we sit there and we think, I could never do that. I could never be that good at at what that, that person is doing there. And, you know, there is a danger, loved ones. There's a danger in us thinking this way about faith and thinking, you know, I could, I could never have the confidence Paul had in the face of persecution and death and suffering. And the scriptures, loved ones, assure us that, yes, you can. And, yes, I can. Because we serve the same Lord. And we have been given the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so this is what Paul is writing here. It's not just for super Christians or uh, professional Christians, for ministers and apostles and the disciples of that day, but it's for all who profess faith in Christ because we all serve the same Lord and we have all been given the same spirit. So Paul begins by commanding us, this exhortation that we are to live as citizens 
of heaven. He says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, as we consider verse 27, we need to see that uh, the literal translation of this verse, it is um, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. In fact, if you are using the ESV translation this morning, you'll notice that there's a, a footnote that provides this translation. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul here is instructing us that above all, we are to live as citizens of heaven. That we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice in this text what Paul is doing. What Paul is doing is he is emphasizing that our primary citizenship, it's not to an earthly kingdom, it's not to an earthly country, but it is to the kingdom of God, to our heavenly country. Um, And Paul will emphasize this very same thing in Philippians chapter 3, about our heavenly citizenship. Philippians chapter 3, I'll read verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul there, again, emphasizing that our citizenship is in heaven, is to be our primary allegiance. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, much the same thing. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 17. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Beloved ones, our citizenship is in heaven. And for the Philippians, we're reading this letter of Paul, this idea that they were above all to live as citizens of heaven, it would have been challenging to uh, their way of of thinking about their own faith. This is because the city of Philippi, it was unique in the Roman Empire because it was actually a city that was composed of a large 
number of retired military soldiers, and they lived in Philippi, and they made their home there. They were involved in, in the city's politics and, and the businesses of the city. These were men who at one time had fought for Rome, uh, who defended Rome, and who prized their citizenship in the Roman Empire. And, you know, it wasn't just former military men in the city who were patriotic. We actually have historical records that show that the city of Philippi was a hub of politics. It was uh, known for its civic pride, for its devotion to the emperor. And so, you know, we could imagine uh, similarly in cities today like Washington, D.C., or Sacramento, that the people who live in those cities are much more tuned into politics. They're much more tuned into the idea of of civic pride. And this is why Paul's command here was so surprising. You're not primarily to live as citizens of Rome. You're primarily to live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, of the good news about Christ. So we see in this text that our primary allegiance is not to a country, it's not to a ruler, but it is to Christ and his gospel. You know, the Bible teaches us that God has placed rulers and authorities in their various positions, and and we are to submit to their leadership. We are to submit to their authority. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains it this way. Uh, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him, over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of those who are good and for the punishment of those who do evil. So we see that Christians should be good citizens who respect civil authority. But we also know from Scripture that there are exceptions. There are exceptions, and this is specifically when we are ordered by civil authorities to violate a command of God. Uh, One example we find is in Acts chapters 4 and 5, where the apostles were ordered to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Um, They were arrested and threatened. And throughout the book of Acts, we read that the apostles didn't stop preaching as a result of their arrest and and the threats that they received from the civil authorities. They went right back to preaching in Jesus' name. And what happened to them? We know that the the pattern of their being arrested and and questioning them uh, was repeated. What was their response? Acts chapter 5, verse 28 We must obey God rather than men. That the apostles knew that if those in authority forbid what God requires, or if those in authority require what God forbids, Christians at that point must not submit to them but to God. Why? Because God is our highest authority. And so living as a citizen of heaven 
It doesn't mean that we should work against earthly governments. It doesn't mean that we are to work against and to disobey those who have been placed in authority over us. But it means that our morals, that our ethics, loved ones, that our virtues, our ambitions, you know, all of these things are to be in accordance with the kingdom of God, with the morals and the ethics and the virtues, not of the kingdom of the United States or the kingdom of any country in Europe or wherever country you find your citizenship in, but it is to be primarily in the kingdom of God. This is why the Apostle Paul emphasizes that we must conduct ourselves in a manner worthy, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the idea here is that our conduct on earth must be characterized by good Christian behavior, behavior that reveals that our ethics and our morals and our virtues are according to what God has commanded us in his word. All of these things are in keeping with our heavenly citizenship. Paul explains in two passages from Scripture what this looks like, what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, Paul again describes what it means to live according to the principles and, and the virtues and the commands that we that God delights in and that are part of his heavenly kingdom. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul says that we are to live as citizens of heaven, but he continues and says in our passage this morning that in order to endure and to persevere in our faith, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, we must also, secondly, see God's gifts of faith and suffering. We must note in our lives God's gifts of both faith and suffering. He says in verse 29 of Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now notice, that Paul here speaks of two gifts from God. The word granted here is a form of the word grace, that these things are given by God. We have been graced with them. And the first gift that Paul refers to here is the gift of faith, that God has 
graced us with the ability to believe in Christ. This is so very clearly explained in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Where Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is pointing out the fact that our faith is truly a work of grace. It's a work of God's unmerited favor toward us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand when we speak about grace, it's not as though uh, when God showed us grace, uh, it's not as though our relationship with him beforehand was one that was uh, neutral. When he showed us grace, it wasn't out of his neutrality uh, toward, toward us. You know, for example, if I help a stranger who is in need, if I see someone in need and I help them out, I don't know them, I'm not, necessar- not necessarily showing them grace by doing that. You know, that stranger and I, we are neutral to one another. We've never met. I neither like them nor dislike them because they're unknown to me. But, you know, it wasn't that way between us and God. The Bible specifically says that before the Lord showed us grace, we were his enemies. We were objects of wrath, and we were not in a neutral relationship with him. We were covenant breakers destined for destruction. And so it's in that context of hostility and animosity. It's in that context that he showed us grace. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, the Apostle Paul explains it so wonderfully. And notice the contrast as Paul explains who we were before God saved us by his grace and then how he did so uh, through the power of his spirit. We read in Titus chapter 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we see so clearly in the scriptures that God graciously granted us the gift of faith. But we see in our passage this morning that he has also graciously granted us the gift of suffering for Christ. Now, what a striking thought that is. That the suffering that Paul is referring to here when he speaks about this gift of suffering, this grace of suffering, 
The suffering that he's speaking about here refers to that which comes from following Christ, be it uh, persecution, uh, rejection, losing your job because you're a Christian, uh, losing your spouse because you're a Christian and they are not and they they leave you, Uh, losing your friends. All these are a result of suffering for the sake of confessing the name of Christ. But, you know, we can also include all of our suffering, can we not? All of our suffering because we know that nothing happens by accident or by chance, but all things are ordered according to God's providence. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism explains it in question 28 when it asks, asks how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And, and the confession here leaves no room for chance, no room for um, anything outside of what God has ordained. The catechism says, answers uh, question 28, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. See, loved ones, God shows us grace by granting us faith, and then he shows us more grace by using the difficulties in our lives to strengthen us, to sanctify us, and even to discipline us as his children. He doesn't punish us for our sins. He doesn't punish us for our sins because Christ bore the punishment for our sins, but he does discipline us as a loving father, as one who cares for us and who wants us to grow in Christ's, in the image of his son, in Christ's likeness. Now, some of us, you know, we might not like the idea of discipline, but we have to understand that the Bible uses it in a very positive way. It's, again, the image of of one who is training a child, right? It's not just negative, but when we speak about God's discipline, it's discipline that encompasses everything that loving parents do to train or to correct or to educate their children in order to help them mature properly. A loving parent is involved in their children's life, caring for them, instructing them, teaching them, guiding them. This is the very definition of parental love and care. And so we see that it's once we're in by grace, once we understand God's goodness and graciousness to us and saving wretches like us, like you and me, it's out of that knowledge that we can then trust that he is working all things for his glory and for our good. We need to see that all the ways in which our Lord disciplines us is for our good, because he is our heavenly father. He is all-knowing, he is all-wise, and he loves us eternally. And so his plan for us as his children is never to break us or to crush us or, or to destroy us or to hurt us, but it's always to refine, to mature, to sanctify, to grow. He might use painful experiences 
illnesses, disabilities, uh, painful seasons of doubt and despair, all of these things to be used by our Heavenly Father in order to uh, grow us in Christ, Christ-likeness. Right? So what Sinclair Ferguson writes uh, in, in response to this, in the explanation to this, he says that when we are brought uh, by faith into Christ, uh, when we are given that grace, then we can interpret our suffering in a very different way. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Of course, you and I suffer. He says, but our sufferings are a part of God's providence in our lives. He is working out his purpose through it. For in his plan, suffering leads to glory, and it helps to create it in our lives. Suffering, Ferguson says, is the friction which polishes our graces. That without it, we would be all the poorer as reflectors of the image of Christ. And so in order to endure and persevere in our faith when going through difficulty, see, we, we must live as citizens of heaven. We must see God's gifts of faith and suffering. And thirdly and lastly, we are to know always that we are in this together, brothers and sisters. We are in this together. We know that one of Satan's tactics is to isolate us from other Christians. And sometimes he seeks to isolate us from other Christians by uh, sowing discord, either discord in the church or, or discord among uh, Christian friends. Uh, and his ultimate goal is to separate us from the body of Christ because Satan knows that a person who feels isolated who, who feels alone, that person is easier to pick off. It's like taking a soldier out of his regiment. That soldier is much more easily defeated when they are alone. One of the illustrations I used to use when I was in youth ministry was it's like taking a coal from a heap of coals and isolating it. Well, that coal that is now isolated will quickly cool off as it is separated from the heat of the larger group. And so Paul writes and encourages the Philippians to see that his suffering and their suffering are one and the same. See, because they are part of the same body of Christ. They are not alone, and he is not alone in this. He writes in verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, And what does Paul want to hear of the Philippians? He wants to hear, he says, that you are standing firm in one spirit. One spirit meaning in the Holy Spirit. That you are standing firm with one mind. That you are in accord together. That you are striving, he says, here side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that in doing this, you are not frightened in anything by your opponents. See, it's that unity, that bond that we see that we have together, brothers and sisters, that will strengthen us and that will cause us to endure to the very end. This is one of the means that God has ordained for our perseverance. Sinclair Ferguson writes, he says, suffering tends to isolate people. Those who comfort others do not share in their suffering. 
But that is not so when Christians suffer. For although our suffering is uniquely ours, we are not alone in it. See, the Philippians saw Paul engaged in the same conflict. They could see in him as well as in one another that through suffering, Christ was creating character. He was refining their characters. This is one of the greatest of all the privileges privileges we enjoy in Christian fellowship, seeing brothers and sisters often older and wiser whose graces shine because of all that they have been through. We see their endurance and we are encouraged by their endurance. Loved ones, this is one of the means of grace that God has granted us. It's our fellowship with one another, standing together firm in our faith. May God grant us the grace to do so as a church. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We pray that you would help us in this life to live according to the principles, virtues, and the rules of your kingdom so that we might shine like stars in this dark and sinful world. Lord, we pray also for strength to cling to Christ even in the midst of our suffering and the difficulties that we face in this life. Lord, we think again of our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world who are imprisoned and fearful and hurting because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, have mercy on them and on us, we pray, for it's in Jesus' name that we ask all these things. Amen.